Good morning, church. Uh, if you haven't met me yet or you're new here today, my name is Trevor. I'm the next-gen pastor here. I want to thank you for being here as we continue our walk through Romans. And today we'll be in chapters 2 and most of chapter 3 if you want to turn in your Bibles there. Um, I'll be walking through that with you all this morning. I want to give you a bit of a disclaimer to start here because this text that we're going on is this continued onslaught that Paul is going on against the Gentile and Jew uh, Christians here in Rome. And this, this uh, while it is a couple chapters here almost, it's a lot of verses, it's a pretty angry text. It's not happy. It's, um, it's, it, it hurts. It's something that bites a little bit, something that's going to step on your toes a little bit. So if at any point throughout this talk time, I seem like I'm angry with you or I seem just agitated, it's not between me and you. It's, it's, not, it's nothing personal. Please understand. I, I, I'm only talking in such a way, number one, because this text makes me angry. Um, and I also want to help you uh, feel the mood of what Paul is saying. Feel the mood of the words that God has given him here today. So uh, he starts it off by saying, therefore. And last week we understood and we got to hear from Matt what the therefore was there for. This whole laundry list of dishonorable passions and and debased practices that the people at Rome were engaging in. And he kind of just ended it by saying, you know, you have no excuse. This is this is not good stuff that you're engaging in. And over the next couple chapters here, he really hits both sides of the spectrum, whether it's Gentiles or Jews, pretty hard. And he tells them what, what it is they're doing wrong. So initially he starts off with these Gentile philosophers. So we'll pick it up in verse 1 and I'll read a few here. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Right away, this, this reminds me of Matthew chapter 7. Judge not, lest you be judged. Think about taking the, the big log out of your own eye before you point out the speck in your brother's eye, right? Don't be, don't be hypocritical in this, but these, these Gentiles, these, these philosophers, were, were being hypocritical in the way they lived. They were pointing out these terrible things that everyone else was doing, these dishonorable passions that we talked about in chapter 1, these, these uh, debased practices, and saying, you're not living the right way. I have this standard right here, this measurement that I'm applying to you, and you're a terrible person because you're engaging in these things, and, and you need to fix yourself. Yet they were turning around and going and doing the very same things that they just condemned. They're being hypocrites. He continues, verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, he asks in a question just, you know, because Paul's kind of a punk sometimes, he says, Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Dun, dun, dun. You know, it's, it's not happy right here out of the gate. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He asks the question, he says, do you really think, let me, let me just understand for a quick second here, do you think that you can escape God's judgment? 
Do you really think that you can just rely on God's goodness and mercy and his kindness and just get away with all this stuff and li not living up to this current standard that you're setting for yourself? Do you really think that you can do that? They were, their hearts were hard. Their, their hearts were impenitent. That means they weren't feeling shame. They were judging people for living a certain way, yet turning around and living the exact same way, and they didn't feel one iota of shame about it. They didn't feel bad. They were saying, I don't care. I'm going to live the way I'm going to live. And a common theme throughout the rest of our talk today is going to be God's wrath, which is never fun to talk about, but it's something that is crucially important to hear we see even in, in verse 5 how important God's wrath is because he named a day after it. This is the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. That's how important God's wrath is, yet we speak very little of it in the church. He goes on and he, he says, If you think that you could escape God's judgment, here, think again. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in, in well-doing seek for glory and, and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will also be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is kind of the end of his, his hard-hitting against the Gentiles by saying, listen, if you think that you could escape God's wrath— think again, because everyone's going to get what's coming to them in the end. For everybody that seeks the good things, that wants to be honorable, that wants to be righteous, they're going to receive eternal life. But for those who seek themselves and obey unrighteousness, pointing out, like these Gentile philosophers are doing, they're going to receive wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. All lovely things, of course. And at the end here, in verses 10, um, well, 9 through 11, he really kind of cracks the door on the transition to talking to the Jews um, by saying, God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter um, where you come from. It doesn't matter if you're in the family of God in this or not. You're going to suffer some of these things if you engage in such practices. So he continues in verse 12 by turning his attention to the Jewish Christians. He's hitting them hard now. He says, for all who have sinned under, without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by it. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what it requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You see, the, the Jews still, and the Jewish Christians that were involved here, still held pretty tightly to the law. That, that was what God had initially given them, the standard of living, this measuring stick, so, so to speak, of how they were supposed to live. And it was interesting because the people here weren't doing what it was saying. How he says it. It's not just the hearers. The, the doers are the people that are actually doing the right thing. There's the ones who will be justified. And what these Jewish Christians were guilty of was just taking in the word of God and taking it in and taking it in and taking it in and just kind of sitting like a bump on a log and not doing anything with it. They weren't applying it to their own life. And we'll learn in the next several verses that they, they use it a little bit, but not for the way that they should be. 
And he just says, it doesn't matter. If, if someone is a Gentile and they're living the way under the law, they're, they're a good example. They're a testament to everyone else. That's good. But you can't apply what God's word says about them to somebody who doesn't believe. However, they can set this good example that we talked about. And, and this is just to say that God and his image is able to be seen through people that don't believe. There are people in my life who don't believe, and I see God in them. I see his image because they're made like him. And while they don't believe, and they can't be held accountable to the way that he lives, the way that he has asked us as followers of Jesus to live, um, they still show his likeness, and that's something that's really important to understand. But he continues here. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew... He starts again. He starts, and he, he goes quite a bit further here. If you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law and boast in God, you know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Oof. That one hurts. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. This one hurts a little bit. This one's starting to bite a little bit. He says, listen, you've had the word of God since the beginning. You have this embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see yourselves as all these things, someone who, who guides those who are in darkness, and, and you, you teach the foolish. You raise children and teach them. You, you have all these things. You know what it is that you're, you're supposed to be doing, yet you're just taking it in, and you're not, you're not doing anything with it. Are you applying these things to yourself? You who teach others, do you teach yourself? If you're saying not to do all these things, are you not doing those things? Verses 23 and 24, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking it. It's because of you that people blaspheme God's name. It's through, many times through our example and how we live as followers of Jesus that make God attractive and make church attractive to other people. I heard a quote in a song many, many years ago that said the greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who know the word of God, but they continue living their old life. Ouch. The Jewish Christians here, because of all these things, the standard that they were setting for everyone that was outside the law, applying God's law and God's way of living to people that hadn't believed it yet, and thinking that they were being you know, given this task of teaching everyone, and they had all this knowledge, but it hadn't transformed their heart. It hadn't transformed the way that they were living. They'd applied it to everyone else except themselves, and because of that, they alienated people from God's church and from his family. Ouch. The Jewish Christians here, because of all these things, the standard that they were setting for everyone that was outside the law, applying God's law and God's way of living to people that hadn't believed it yet, and thinking that they were being you know, given this task of teaching everyone, and they had all this knowledge, but it hadn't transformed their heart. It hadn't transformed the way that they were living. They'd applied it to everyone else except themselves, and because of that, they alienated people from God's church and from his family. 
They held to the law a little bit too much. And he goes on in verse 25, he says, For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. This is going to be a little bit confusing in the next few verses, um, so follow along pretty well. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The Jews were guilty of two things. They put their emphasis on two big things. Number one, that they were part of the family of God. They had this idea, you know, this, which had been passed to them in the Old Testament, that they still held to once they came into the New Covenant, that being Jew, being Jew gave them a little bit more of a status symbol. They were uncircumcised. They held to that. And they knew the law. They had these two things that set them apart, and they still held to that. And at times, we see in the book of Romans, and as well in the book of Galatians, they alienated others because of that. And Paul, saying to them at this point, so he's, he's just laying it out. He says, that doesn't matter anymore. Whether or not you are physically uncircumcised does not matter anymore. Because what actually matters is what's in your heart. Are you doing what's in your heart to set yourself apart from an unbelieving worldview? Are you doing what sets you apart from those who are blaspheming this name, this name of Jesus? And I think sometimes we get too caught up in this when we are in the church as well, where we attach too much emphasis to this title that's part of who we are. We say, hi, I'm Trevor, I'm a Christian, I go to church. We attach too much to that part of Christian, and we don't work on the heart part. We don't do the part that sets us differently and sets us apart from those who might not believe. Put too much emphasis on this spiritual to-do list that we're supposed to take part in, that maybe someday God will let us into heaven because of it. And what I want you to understand here after chapter 2, and I know it's been a long haul here, is that no one escapes God's judgment. If you're coming here this morning to hear a wonderful, encouraging, empowering message about how much Jesus loves you and how great it is to be a follower of Jesus, I'm sorry, but that's not what it's going to be today. No one escapes God's judgment. Those aren't really the words that I want to hear on a Sunday morning. Those aren't the encouraging things that I say to someone to help them get through their day. That doesn't mean that I don't need to hear it. No one escapes God's judgment. I had a pastor that I served under when I was at college in Joplin, and we, it was a church plant that was called Hope City Church and um, launched in, I think, spring of 2014, so it's been around a little bit now. But he had this saying at the very beginning, this mantra for our church, and he said, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. And what he meant by that was that everybody, no matter their background, no matter what they were going through, if they'd followed Jesus for a long time, or if they had just started coming to church, all of them were in the same boat. They were all broken and sinful and in need of God's grace. And that is kind of where Paul's getting at here. He's like, it doesn't matter if you've been a Jew and you know the words of the law and you're teaching people and all that stuff. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are outside the family of God and you know nothing about who God is. All of you deserve God's judgment. 
And none of you can get away from that. You're all in the same boat. These are tough words to hear. Tough words to hear. He continues um, in chapter 3, and you might think, hey, maybe chapter 3 will be better. It's really not. Verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That was the word that was passed to them that we were supposed to take to the nations. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? He uses three little words here that he also uses later. Incredibly important. By no means. By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way here. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Second thing I want you guys to pick out this morning, um, and I'll say it right at the beginning of this because it's got a twofold answer. God is faithful even when we're not. God is faithful when we are not. And I mean that in two ways. Number one, that God is faithful to us when we are unfaithful to him. We see that from the beginning. Adam and Eve were created. They had this wonderful relationship with God in the garden, and they chose to walk away. And because God is righteous, because God is perfect, he says, I can't have the relationship I had with you before. Things have to be different now. You're going to feel the weight of your sin. You're going to experience pain in childbirth. You're going to have to work your back to the bone in order to provide for your family. And they had to walk away. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see this back and forth where the people of God walk away and he says, I'm here and I got my hand out and I'm waiting for you and I want you to come back and I have this way that I'm going to lead you. But you got to come back and you got to do things this way. And there's this back and forth where they walk away and they do all sorts of debased things with other nations and, and, and run away from God and then they come back and he wraps them up in this embrace and they're back in again. But then they, they go back and forth and back and forth. And a perfect example of this is in the book of Exodus. Moses has gone up onto the mountain to receive the law from God, and he, he's written into the side of the mountain with his own hand. And when he comes back down, the people have made this golden calf that they're worshiping because God has taken too long, and Moses might be dead, or he might not care. He's just disappeared. They walked away. They ran away. Yet, Joshua 1, chapter, or verse 5 Chapter 1, verse 5, he says to his people, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. He knew all of the times after that that the people of God were going to run away and come back and run away and come back and run away and come back. Yet he said, I'm never going to leave you, I'm never going to forsake you. I am your God, you are my people. We turn to the New Testament, and things, while the way God does things is a little bit differently, the, the, the commitment is still the same, and if you truly think about it, and if you read through and recognize, every single New Testament church was unfaithful to God in some way or another. Every single one of them. Yet, 
Matthew chapter 28. He's risen from the dead, and, and he's, he's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he says to his people, Lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. I'm with you. He knows all the ways that the church is going to go back and forth and is going to run away from him and is going to dishonor him and is going to be unfaithful to him. Yet he says, I am with you. To the end of this whole thing, I'm with you. God is faithful to us when we are unfaithful to him. Second part of this is that God is faithful to himself even when we're unfaithfulness. Um, when, our, when we're unfaithful to him. And what I mean by that is that God, we see this, God is righteous. God is perfect. He is, he is all-powerful. He's the creator of the universe. He is, he is the greatest. And his righteousness is not compromised for a bunch of sinners like us. He doesn't come down to our level and say, okay, well, I guess I can kind of tweak it a little bit to where, you know, we're okay. He doesn't compromise on himself for us. It says, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? By no means. He doesn't want to inflict that, but we are deserving. Because he is perfect, he is righteous, and we are not. God is faithful, even when we are not faithful to him. Chapter 3, again, verses 9 through 20, are really the hardest-hitting part of this entire section that I want you to be prepared for, church. Um, this is the most raw, I believe, of this text. This is the most dark, and this is something that's hard for me to even read, hard for me to even swallow as a follower of Jesus, so I just want you to be prepared for this as we go through it. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We talked before, God shows no partiality. For as it is written, none are righteous. No. Not even one person. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one person. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under your lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's dark. This is not the stuff I want to open my Bible up to and have a devotional through. This is not the type of thing I want to encourage my wife as she goes to work. Hey, honey, you, the venom of asps is underneath your lips. Have a great day at work. <laughs> it's not something that you want to yell at your kids as they go to school. Hey, your feet are swift to shed blood. Study hard. This is not what we want to hear. This is, this is deep. This is hurtful. This is the darkness. This is the weight of our sin right here. We are unable to attain our own righteousness. And that sucks to admit. That hurts. Because I want to be viewed as the guy that can deal with this stuff. I want to be viewed as the guy that can, that can handle himself, right? 
I want to be capable. I want to I figure this out. I want to pull myself up by my bootstraps and get it done. I want to do it. But guess what? I can't. And none of us can. We're unable to attain our own righteousness. And that was the problem that the Jews had, and that was the problem that the Gentiles had, is that they thought that if they lived up to this certain standard that they set for themselves, that if they that if they held to that and they lived this way, that they would be able to attain this righteousness, that they would be able to attain maybe eternal life with God, where if we follow this checklist, someday God says, okay, you did this thing where you went to church every Sunday and you, you, um, you led a small group and, and you, um, you gave this much amount of money to the church. Sweet, here's the gate. Go for it. Hop on in. But that's not how it works. I can't follow a, a set list of rules and expect to make my way to heaven. Verse 18 and 19. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We can't expect to, to follow this way of living and earn our way to heaven. And that's what Paul is telling the Jews and the Gentiles here. He says, listen, the law was not what saved you. Anything that you can do to possibly earn God's favor is not what saves you. Because you can't do it. You can't get there on your own. The law was only supposed to point you to repentance. The law was only supposed to hold you accountable for the way that you're living your life. It doesn't save you. It doesn't make you any better off in God's sight than where you were before. It doesn't work like that. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. Try as we might, we will never make ourselves righteous in the sight of God. We could try our hardest. We could work our whole life serving the church and loving the church and, and, and giving to the church, but if we, if we just do it on our own, we can't do it. And I know this isn't something that you wanted to come to Sunday morning church and hear about. I know it's not, because I didn't want to hear it either. And I'm up here, and I'm, I'm the one that gets to say it. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm not, I've never been a big fan of the dark. We don't like the dark. When I was a child, I, I had a bedtime. My brother and I, we slept in the same room, had bunk beds. It was great. I think 8.30 was our bedtime, oddly enough, but... We had a nightlight in the corner of the room. There was a nightlight, and that kept me safe. Or so I thought. It, it kept me safe. It kept the, you know, I, I could rest easy at night knowing that there weren't any monsters that were going to come out from under my bed. There were no skeletons that were going to jump out of my closet. I was going to be okay. That nightlight kept me safe. And I remember the first night that my parents took it away. They came out. They unplugged it. You know, we're all tucked into bed. We said our prayers and all that. And they said, you're, you're big boys now. You can handle this. You can do it. We love you. Good night. We'll see you in the morning. Close the door. <laughs> Pitch black. Pitch black. And it didn't matter that my brother was two feet underneath me in the bottom bug, somehow already asleep. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. I said, bring it back. <laughs> bring back my nightlight. 
I can't handle it in here. I can't handle this darkness because there's things in there that I don't want to, I don't want to see. That's where we are at the end of verse 20 in Romans chapter 3. It's dark, folks. It's dark and there's no nightlight here. It's just a cutoff. And we're like David, we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and you cut it off before he says, I can fear no evil. You're just there and you got to recognize the deepness and the darkness of your sin. And that's no fun. That's not something to, to, to play around with. That's not something that I want to hear anybody tell me, whether it's Sunday morning or outside. I don't want to hear that, that I can't escape God's right, righteous judgment. I don't want to hear that I can't attain my own righteousness. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear how much God loves me. But the cutoff here is that there's no light at the end of the tunnel, that there's, there's just a cutoff, and I have to sit in this. I've got to sit in this darkness. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you are this Sunday. I don't know if, you're, if you've been feeling just the weight of that sin, of the darkness of a, of a broken world and a broken life. I don't know if you've been feeling that recently, or maybe you're just now feeling it because I brought it up this Sunday morning. If you're feeling that, if you are struggling with that, please, I beg of you, be here next week. Be here next week. I know the first couple of chapters of Romans have been rough, where we've had to have things just put up right in front of our face of here's all the ways that we fall short. And while at the end of today's talk there's no light at the end of the tunnel, there is a light next week that we're going to talk about. And this is one of the most foundational sections of Scripture that we have for those of us that believe. So please be here next week. Be here next week. Because if you haven't believed in Jesus, um, or if you're just coming back to him, or if you followed him for a while, this is something that is life-changing. This is something that will show you the power of God. For now, we got to sit in the dark. Let's pray. God, today was rough. We all had to hear things about ourselves and about some of our heritage in the church that we didn't really want to hear and we might not have been prepared to hear, God. These things hurt. It's like taking a knife and just twisting it in between our rib cage, God. That it doesn't it doesn't feel good. It's not empowering, but God, it's still something we need to hear and still something that is important for us to understand. May we never seek um, to continue in these ways. May we recognize the ways that we need to grow and recognize the ways that we need to seek you, God. We ask this in your name. Amen.